Welcome to the Partnernomics Show, where industry thought leaders discuss the hottest topics in partnerships, ecosystems, and innovation. The Partnernomics Show is brought to you by Iolite Solutions, a product incubator specific to Salesforce. Now here's the host of the Partnernomics Show, Mark Brigman. Mr. Jay McBain, it's so good to see you again. How are things going? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Uh, the world pretty good down there in Florida? It's, uh, it's sunny and... and, and uh... I think it's about 82 degrees, so can't, can't ask for a better winter for a Canadian. I was going to say, it's a little bit colder than that in Kansas City, so please, you know, throw some of that warm, warm air up here. Hey, we're ready to kick off another episode, Partnernomics Show. Are you ready to rock and roll? Let's do it. All right. I got a question wrapped up here for you, and that is Wall Street. Man, it's so interesting talking about different investment. You had mentioned, uh, I guess in 21, there's been a billion dollars of investment that's come into, into our world in 21. And I don't think there's really anything uh, showing that that's going to be slowing down. So the question is, does Wall Street prefer investors to where uh, they place some bets on kind of these big ideas? Or do they value more of proof where uh, investors simply want to fund organizations that are ready to scale. They already have stuff that's kind of proved out and now they're just looking to, to grow that. Yeah, so I got a really cool part of my job is that I get to work both sides of this conversation. I work on so many companies in their pitch deck, how they put together those 12 really beautiful slides with a lot of white space, walking through kind of the ecosystem, everything else. But then I end up being a reference to private equity and venture capitalists and stuff that says, hey, you're the analyst and you're the guy that put the TAM number there and you know what good is and could this you know, disrupt that? You know, did they invent something new or did they make something that's there a little bit better? You know, can you just tell me, because we're not channel experts, give me your advice on whether we should write the check. And something has changed. And I, I founded a company 10 years ago, so I know this well and raised $5 million. And I know the change that happened then. You know, you would write your pitch deck. And the first thing you would do is make up a new acronym. Yeah, we might look like a CRM company, but we're really a SEA company. And nobody would recognize SEA. So you'd spend you know, a little time saying what that is. And then you'd say why you're the leader. You build your own little Forrester quadrant or something, put yourself in the upper right and say everybody else, you know, kind of, you know, Salesforce and everybody else doing CRM, you know, they suck at this. So we're going to, we're the leader. And that's the, that will stop a meeting today with Wall Street. They're saying, okay, you're inventing something. Even for a seed investor that's coming in with like a, your first million dollars, they're going to stop the meeting and hang up the phone. They are looking for a pitch deck that does this. And I, and I see so many successful companies that can do this, that a company like Forrester has come out and said that it's a billion dollar market today, that real customers are spending real dollars. There's real buyers reading real things and going through real buying cycles. Tell me how you can go get your fair share. If it's a billion dollar market, you're not going to be a billion dollar company, but tell me how you can go get your fair share, which is a hundred million, because then I can value you at a billion and, and buy a new yacht. So put yourself in the category that you're disrupting and give me a category that's big enough. So basically to answer your question, I'm not looking for an inventor at all. I'm looking for somebody who might've invented something, but is walking into a market that already exists, that has money already being spent, that has enough differentiation or disruption in that market to earn my fair share. And at some point, if you wanna go over here and you've invented a social network and you wanna go invent the metaverse, you know, perfect. We'll talk about that when you're a trillion dollar company. Yeah. 
So that's the idea now is Wall Street just tell me about the market. Tell me about how you go get your fair share. Tell me about your ecosystem. Tell about, about your go-to-markets. Tell me about your marketing and sales. Tell me about the innovation you have in terms of getting your fair share of something that already exists. And then maybe later on, we'll talk about when you come in for the next round. If you want to fund a bigger idea, I want to be funding a 10, 20, 30, $40 million company that knows how to you know, operationally and financially you know, at least break even before we start talking about bigger things. I love that, man. So many times uh, we, we talk to different startup entrepreneurs and these people, and I think that you have to create something new. The only way that you can become this huge, wildly successful unicorn company is to be creating something new. We'll go look at all of those. They, they didn't create anything new. They just took the advice that you had, right? You find some pain in the market and then you build the solution. You put the solution together and it's not a new invention. You put the solution together, product market fit, and then figure out how to scale. So man, so true, but that's, man, just one thing I see is it's not about kind of the, the whole idea and, and around entrepreneurship, kind of building these new things. That's so damn expensive. That's why so many of these companies die. They run out of money before they ever have a chance to commercialize their, their product. So here's a fun thing to do. Go to the stock market and sort by valuation. Exactly. Go from number one to number 100. None of those companies invented what they do to gain the valuation they did. There's somebody else. There's some... Xerox Spark, there's some, you know, IBM has led the patent race for 28 straight years, but dropped revenue for the last 10. Yeah. There is some company out there that invented it that owns the patent. And there's some other company that watches as it approaches market fit and knows and maybe has a better engine to go get their fair share faster. And what ends up happening always is these companies with better marketing, better sales, better go to market. And in the end, the better ecosystem wins. That's exactly it. Awesome. All right. Time's up. Question two. All right. We had talked Make in it the easy. past. Oh. Make it easy. We, we had talked in the past about negotiation. Yeah. One of the things that other companies might lob at you is exclusivity. You know, exclusive to a buyer, exclusive to a market, like an industry, a geography, or even worse, uh, you know, it could be just um, broadly exclusive. So if that's lobbed and you're a partnering professional, is it something you would ever agree to? Uh, short answer is hell yes, I would agree to it. <laughs> and so this is one of those interesting uh, topics, I think, where I mean, I've literally seen, read through different reports, different thought leaders out there say, you know, never, never, never agree to exclusivity. You're just kind of breaking into jail. You're putting handcuffs on. The problem is whenever people use exclusivity in a term, a lot of times, they don't put the second piece to the exclusivity, which gives you the get out of jail free card. So here's some of the benefits that I see, right? So we were just talking about, you know, trillion dollar companies or $3 trillion companies, people knocking on the door. Who's that? Apple's one of them. What allowed them to do that? The iPhone. The iPhone was a five-year exclusive relationship between AT&T and Apple. So why in the heck would they ever do that? Simplification and focus. Right? Both of those organizations, both Apple and AT&T knew, especially from Apple's perspective, they knew that there's a lot of moving parts that's going to go into trying to get tens of millions of these devices in AT&T customers' hands. They wanted to build out the model of what all that looked like and reduce the quantity of variables that are out there. Um, I'm actually a huge fan of exclusivity for the right relationship, but the thing is you have to have a get out of jail free card. 
it has to be tied to performance. If your counterpart is not performing, you need to have a way to, to get out of that. But I love the, the focus that it can bring to relationships, especially those highly strategic relationships where you have a lot of unknowns, a lot of moving parts, kind of welding the ship as you sail it. Yep. That's my take. All right. My take is it, it's yes with a huge asterisk. And, yep. and the asterisk is actually bigger than the word yes. Um, it depends on industry. It depends on geography. It depends on a lot of different things. So if I'm a small entrepreneur and I'm in Kansas City, you know, I want to make millions for my family. I can go sign an exclusive agreement with McDonald's and that store is going to generate a million if I can get one. Uh, you know, if I want to go sell Chevys, I can sign an exclusive arrangement, set up, you know, go sell trucks on the edge of town. You know, that's probably going to generate my family millions. So now the question is, if I'm a technology entrepreneur, you know, you, you don't have to sign up exclusive. You understand that the customer's buying seven things. There's an ecosystem. There's no single throat to choke that we've talked about in the past. So in the end, I got to be care very careful. Last thing I'm going to say about exclusivity, you know, if you're looking to grow and you've got a SaaS company, you're looking to grow outside of the US, you got to sign some exclusive value-added distributors. Why? Because they need a couple of years to reclaim their investment. They have lots of choices and they're not just going to sign an exclusive without some time limited, you know, time where they can make profit, kind of like the AT&T thing you talked about. It's very much an ecosystem tactic and you just got to be very careful. Absolutely. Eyes wide open. <laughs> be eyes wide open because they're real. They come with some teeth. All right. Got another question for you here, Jay. Uh, that is to SaaS CEOs, right? So you just mentioned the SaaS space. So let's, let's hit them with a question. That is, so many SaaS CEOs have to understand partnering from really two different vantage points or through two different lenses. One of those is from the channel of how in the heck do I sell the solution that I have? And the second piece is around co-creation, uh, tech integrations, kind of different flavors of partnerships that aren't so transactional. Uh, how, how should the CEO balance or think about these two uh, different lanes of partnerships because they're different? Yeah, so first of all, I'll break up the question a little bit. There's no SaaS CEO that can be successful at the limits of, of where they wanna take their company and do it alone. I, I mentioned that there's seven layers to the average SaaS stack. It may start with you and go to six others that are integrated in that last mile, or it might start with someone else. In most cases, it's gonna start somewhere else and you're gonna be one of the layers uh, above that. So you're not gonna win as a SaaS CEO alone. There's absolutely no question whether you need an ecosystem or not. The question is when. It used to be around channel sales that you had to reach maturity that you had to have product fit, you had to have a sales and marketing engine that's repeatable and scalable. And it was always that franchise. Is it time to put a restaurant on every street corner of the world? Well, now in ecosystem, there's no timing. You gotta come out of the gate with a set of technology and strategic alliances and business alliances from day one. You're partnering with big trillion dollar companies, you're getting in their marketplaces, you gotta get there from day one. It's gotta be part of your pitch deck, your business outline. The second thing is, when do you layer in channel sales? I mean, obviously, you know, that's a question, but there's five layers that you have to decide. You've already decided on the, on the tech and strategic and business alliances. You've got to start making a decision when you're going to have partners assist your sales and marketing folks with getting customers to the dance. You've got to decide what kind of partner assist you need at the point of transaction. It could be that partner taking the customer's money 
It could be that partner walking them into a marketplace, which happens in 24% of cases today, or it could be that partner walking them in direct to your marketplace, your e-commerce or your direct uh, sales engine. But you've got to realize as a SaaS CEO, 90% of your business is going to be partner assisted. So when do you start inviting them in at those different stages? And you're in SaaS, you're in subscription. Now you got the first 30 days. How do we adopt, drive adoption? How do we drive stickiness? How do I get enrichment? How do I keep this a customer for life? Well, guess what? Partners wrapped all around all those things every 30 days forever. So there's no question anymore of if. Yeah. It's really a question of when to layer in these five layers of the ecosystem. And to your point, Jay, you know, I, we've all heard, especially in years past, about being mobile first with these different platforms. Uh, I think we both share the, the sentiment of partner first. Your organization that you're standing up from day one, you need to think about partnerships. Don't build the traditional way of we're going to do it direct. We're going to be independent. We're going to have our sales force. And then someday we'll grow into using partners for, uh, you know, for sales, working in the channel or to get, you know, for innovation and these other pieces. Build that into the deck day one. And definitely if you're going after investments, investors, if they're smart, they're going to be asking you and expecting this from absolute day one. Yeah, well, that's, their, that's your go-to-market, but you got to be careful on timing. If you go out and recruit a bunch of partners, your, your product isn't fully baked, your sales and marketing engine isn't fully executing on eight cylinders, um, some of those early adopter partners could get turned off. They tell 10 friends who tell 10 friends. And we've seen, I've seen thousands of companies, mm -hmm. false starts, big companies that you'd recognize the logos of continually make false starts in the channel because they didn't feather in the timing appropriately. Those product fit, those marketing and sales engines, they are critical if you're talking about channel sales. But when you're talking about partnerships, it literally starts in your pitch deck. It literally starts day one. And you got to be careful of the three stages during the customer journey to make sure that you're mature of enough of an organization, that you're driving enough opportunity for partners and you're driving enough, you know, partner experience, a program and everything else, you know, to make it worthwhile. You have the strategy day one, but then you need to test drive some stuff internally so that you're ready because you have to equip your partners with how to sell your solution or what your solution is. That's awesome. Yep. All right. Uh, All right. Let's close it off. I've got a question for you. Let's do it. So almost everything we've been talking about has, you know, been on the, you know, outside of this main question, which is around growth. You know, every company at their core, when you ask them in big surveys, it's about growth. So CEOs must decide to build organically or partner and collaborate. What are the key factors in deciding which approach to take? Yeah, so for me, my brain immediately goes to, do we have to own it? I mean, I, I truly believe that organizations should think partner first, just because of speed, know-how, cost sharing, flexibility, network effects, all of this stuff that we talk about, we should think about and consider partner first. I think most organizations today still think organic first. So I would challenge people to, to, you know, to kind of think about that approach. But for me, uh, if it's like some IP, something like that, where you feel that you have to own 100% of it, and frankly, I think a lot of times that could even be bad because it's very limiting. It's not so much about you know, kind of the know-how because it's all expanding, it's all growing. Uh, but if you feel that you have to own it, 
then organic is going to be the way, but you still everything is going to be partner assisted as, as you think about you know going into the future. But there's definitely pros and cons to each of those, but in nearly every case or in every case, in my biased opinion, I mean, partnering is the way to go. Really, you just had to kind of figure out is acquisition a piece of this where we're going to get out the checkbook? We're going to buy our way to pieces of that. But, you know, I think that partnerships can accelerate the, the time to get into market, provides the, the network effects, provides additional know-how, uh, can reduce risk or uh, at least help you mitigate risk going into that. Um, I'm not a big fan of just this kind of I call it old school mentality of we have to we have to own it and control it all the way through. It's I don't think the future state is about ownership. It's about letting everybody, you know, the whole rising tide to raise all ships. You have to provide an incentive for others to have an opportunity to, to have a piece of the pie. Love yeah. to have your take. Yeah, the CEO has to drive the culture because the CEO doesn't make every decision. You don't make every buy versus build decision all the way down through your lines of business and, you know, down to your directors, you know, doing pilots and things, but you've got to drive the culture of partnering. And the idea is that, you know, I work with companies every day who, you know, build a really big platform a mile wide and an inch deep. And, you know, now that I've published five new layers of ecosystem tech, now they're building out those modules too. And they're really building them to be like 80 or 90% functional so they can check a box in an RFP and not lose a deal because of it. And that culture is different than going to the leaders in those categories that have already been established that are raising over a billion dollars last year and saying that if we could build the best integration possible where it looks like the same application and it works as a one-two punch, we're a partnering culture. We're not building. Our first reflection or reflex is always to partner. If there's no partner there, or if we're too early in the market, we might build. But before you ever, you know, green light a project anywhere in your organization or, or have any of your direct reports green light anything, they should flush out the partnering elements before they ever make a build decision today. And maybe 10 plus years ago, there was some advantage to owning, building, doing that stuff today. I Man, I just don't think it, it really plays out. Man, I love what you hit on with the, the culture piece there. Because man, I, I beat on the drum. I truly believe that partnering is a culture and it needs to be a culture within the organization. So many times, I think whenever companies are created, it's, it's a very independent culture. It's us against the world. It's us in the foxhole. We got each other's back. But what we're seeing now is in this ecosystem economy, that is your ticket to, to significant growth. It is working with others. And if we view uh, these partners as, oh my gosh, we're growing a third eyeball or we're growing a third arm, uh, your culture is going to push back if they don't understand that. And that will be a detriment. That will be a cost. Yeah. The best platforms on the planet, the, the ones that are valued the highest, uh, understand this. They understand that they might have a product, but it doesn't fit the 65 billion permutations that particular customer at the end. So their salespeople are compensated. Their executives are compensated, whether you sell your own layer above or your competitors. You can retire your quota delivering the right seven layer SaaS stack to solve a problem. And you know, hopefully you earn two, three or four of those layers. But even if you don't, it's important that that customer's outcome, that you remain that stickiness and you have a chance to co-innovate and build in the future. I mean, that point for enrichment, it's all partnering. 
and you shouldn't die on the, any hill anymore. And understand that sometimes you're gonna be the initial layer of the cake and others are gonna pave that last mile. And in other cases, in most cases, you're not gonna be that initial layer and you're paving you know, other layers of other cakes. And if you're in front of all of your market target addressable market size, any which way, that's an ecosystem play. Yeah, love it. Awesome. Jake, thanks for checking in with us. Thanks for contributing. It's been awesome checking in with you and uh, keep up the good work. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Partnernomics Show. Don't forget to subscribe to get the newest episodes at thepartnernomicsshow.com. Special thanks to our sponsors, Iolite. To learn more about Iolite, visit iolitepro.com. And Partnernomics, the science of partnering. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics courses, coaching programs, and consulting services, visit Partnernomics.com. See you on the next episode.